congratulations because this show, Thank Daniel Hurley, uh, goes out three days before your wedding. Again, it would look really bad for me if in three days' time you didn't go ahead with it. You're absolutely sure you want to be with this woman for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it won't age well, but yeah, I'll probably have more problems than you if that, uh, that was the case. Yes, just about. Yeah. Especially because all these people are coming to... I imagine it's at um, the London Stadium, the wedding. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a bit far away. No, just down in Portsmouth. Oh, um, yeah, we've got a lot of people from London coming to us, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I hope the weather is favourable. I only ask because Kevin Day had his wedding reception at Selhurst Park. Oh, yeah, I knew that, actually. Mm. That's hilarious. Yeah, I don't think um, I don't think we're inviting quite enough people there. It would feel much at the London Stadium, to be fair. You could have just hopped on it at half-time, because a wedding ceremony can only take 15 minutes. I'd, actually, that would be a really good incentive for people to come to the London Stadium. Obviously, <laughs> they'll get a football yeah. match with some degree of expertise, but... Yeah, West Ham fans getting married uh, on the pitch. Yeah, I've seen people time. propose on the pitch before. I've seen that a couple of times. God, it's a big risk. You've got to be 100%. Yeah. You've got to be sure. Well, you get the crowds chant as well. You don't know what you're doing, uh, which is yeah. always quite funny. It so. happens a lot in American sports with the Jumbotron. But yes, congratulations yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, for this weekend. Do you get a honeymoon as well? Yeah, we're going to um, Cardiff for a couple of days next week, and then we're going to Italy next year, so... That's yeah, it should good. be nice. Very good. Yeah. Uh, so that will be one of your days that made you. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Here's the, here's the pivot. Look, we've had you in before, so you talked about West Ham. I'm sure you even talked about a lot of the games that made us. It's 50 matches to define the last 30 years of West Ham United. It's out now. I, I wanted to know, firstly, will people get, for your wedding, will you get lots of West Ham paraphernalia? <laughs> This time, and I don't think so. Um, yeah, I've, I kind of considered in the speech how early I'd make a joke about being a, an author, um, which I thought I'd see how quickly I can get my, my then wife and family members and stuff to roll their eyes at. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of still kicking that around in my mind. But uh, yeah, I was tempted to have a little stall set up for people to buy, and I thought I've got a captive audience. Oh, of course, um, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> because this book is it on sale in the West Ham shop? Sadly, not at the moment. Uh, hopefully, watch this space. Good. Is the honest answer. Yeah, because the last thirty years have been horrifically eventful for this football club. Mm. Not every season has been in the Premier League. Watford have had, uh, is it eight? Eight seasons of the last thirty in the top division. West Ham must be twenty-five. Um, off the top of my head, the very first one from my time period, we weren't, and I think three others. So yeah, it'd be twenty-six. Yeah. So a lot of Premier League games. How many games from the second tier are in this book? Three or four. A playoff final and, uh, and a couple of others. But uh, one that was uh, quite significant in the club's history and one that was quite uh, showed a little bit of how things have changed over quite a, quite a small space of time. Yeah, it's almost like a, a longitudinal study is what they're called. So you take something which is the same all the way through and then see how it's gone through time. So... Um, we're talking on the bank holiday Monday, the unscheduled bank holiday, which is why I get you, because you have a very busy professional and personal life. Um, and <laughs> and in your spare time, you like to watch West Ham lose to Everton. But let's not go there. Yeah, very much not. Okay. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, this longitudinal study, because you started in 93. This was the, the bonds that didn't go ahead. Yes. And, um, and the promotion season from the what was then... Division 1 to the Premier League. 
yeah, that was my first year. I mentioned this in the book a little bit, but my dad that wanted to go with my uncle, like his brother-in-law. And once we got relegated that season, my uncle decided it kind of had better things to do on a Saturday afternoon and watch pitch invasions all the time. So my dad then, for the first time ever in his life, was going to football by himself. And I was seven, nearly eight at the time, and he thought it was about time to start taking me. And as a cover in the book initially, I really didn't like it. I had no interest in football whatsoever. Yeah, couldn't really understand why he was making me do it. I couldn't. I wasn't any good at playing it. Still not, sadly. Um, and had no interest in in the sport whatsoever. But I was the oldest. I've got the oldest of three boys. So it was up to me to go with him. And, uh, yeah, in the end, and I detail it in the book, there was a couple of games, one game in particular, that um, that hooked me. And, yeah, it was a, a bug I haven't got rid of since. Some of the players that have come through, well, well we might touch on the flops if there's time, and there will be. <laughs> um, but some of the players, as, as we talked about last time you were in the library, because uh, you wrote this book, this brilliant book, about the season of Tevez, uh, when West Ham stayed up in spite of everything. But yeah, some of the players that have come through West Ham and, and at this end point this season, where you have a central midfielder who will probably start in a World Cup. Yeah, and was probably, for my money, was our best player in the final of the European Championships as well. Without mm. wanting to moan too much about what's happening exactly right now, but we've all of a sudden got players who are in the Brazil squad and the Italy squad and Spain squad it's a far cry from when I started. But then, at the same time, you look back to, say, maybe 99-2000, and, you know, you had the likes of Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, Joe Cole, Michael Carrick. It, it's not a new phenomenon for West Ham to have international calibre, top-level international calibre players. It's just sometimes the issue is, is what they do with them when they're there, to be honest. Yeah, and you could look back to 1966 with more Peters and Hurst. Absolutely. Um, but I, I do want to, you've, you've taken me exactly where I wanted to go because I read Michael Carrick's book um, for my Youth Cup book and researching the Tony Carr wizardry. And that team that, that came through under Tony in 98-99, which trounced Coventry City. I can't remember if I asked you if you were at, at that final. I was, and it's actually in, it's in the new book. Excellent. That game is 1 for 50. Yeah. Yes, um, was it as incredible as I read about from Michael Carrick's book? Because they seemed like a really good group of people, like how Sean Dyche gets together the group, the, the group of West Ham lads, um, which included Carrick and Cole and um, uh, Bywater, the goalkeeper. A very good team. Yeah, outstanding team, yeah. I mean, Carrick, I think Carrick, probably that was his, his big night. I think I think he scored one goal and I think he hit the bar of another. Two great long-range efforts. Um, Joe Cole was a, a semi-regular in our team at that point, but they actually let him play in that match. And it, it was—it seemed almost cheating to have it. it was That's so what Lee Fowler ahead. told me. I, I spoke to Lee, who was a Coventry player, and yes, he said, "Yeah, West Ham got all the ringers down, and they trounced us nine 0 It was unfair, but such is yeah. life. Yeah, I mean, the fact was, he was seventeen. He was more entitled to be there. I think it just shows how far ahead he was. Because mm. it was honestly, I think we took him off after about an hour because he was literally playing for the main team. But it was like watching like an adult against children. It was so far ahead of, you know, with all due respect. And I think I mentioned quite a few of the commentary players had good careers as well. I think Callum Davenport played for West Ham. I think Chris Kirkman was their goalkeeper as well. And they had good careers and. He was, I mean, I actually talk about a little bit about Cole in the book, saying that 
I don't think any young player had ever had as much hype pre-internet, essentially, as Joe Cole had. I think there were newspaper articles, double-page spreads about a person who'd never played a game. And um, maybe you could argue in the end, like a little bit, uh, maybe it's difficult, maybe he didn't quite live up to the hype. Actually, if you look at his career, multiple league titles, even caps, he had a fantastic career, but I think so much was expected. It was almost quite difficult for him to live up to that in the end. Yeah, which is why... I think we're we're trying to be sensible with Declan Rice. I really thought he'd go to Chelsea this summer, but he obviously looked at what was going on at that club and thought, I'm not having this. So, amazingly, he's stayed at West Ham and he is the fulcrum around which the team spins. Is he still wearing 41 or has he changed? Is he wearing four now? No, 41. I think it'll be one of those. It'll be 41 for his career. I think that I could well see that. Uh, or four, maybe 26 is now. Yeah. We'll go to the other midfielder whom he replaced uh, later on because there is a memoir. There's a famous West Ham memoir. This isn't the only West Ham book released this year. Tony Carr has put out his memoir. Did you rush to buy it? Yes, I have read it, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Which I I haven't read yet. I think I'm waiting for the paperback. But um, comes across so well in every book written by a young West Ham footballer. Do you think that the West Ham senior team not just in the Redknapp era, but since then, has had Tony Carr running in it. Carr's almost the unseen 12th man in the West Ham senior team. Yeah, I think for a very long time, yeah. I think any, um, well, from before that, before my time as well, I mean, people like Tony Carr, Paul Ince, I think would have, um, would have spoken, to Carr, spoken to Carr's influence as well. But certainly up to, well, Noble, as we'll talk about in a little while, I think there was pretty much every young player that came through it, they all had certain um, certain ethics, certain skills. All comfortable on the ball. All kind of wanted the ball. A lot of you could, I think, you could identify a young West Ham player quite, quite well in that era. Um, when I say era, I'm talking 20, 30 years as well. I think it speaks to kind of what he instilled. I would say. Yeah, and which was what determination, never giving up, just being a good professional. Massively, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't think we ever had. Paul Ince apart, I think that was probably badly advised, but we didn't have too many issues with young players kind of um, throwing toys out of pram or anything. Even when a lot of the boys did leave, Rio, for instance, and stuff, and, you know, are very respectful to the club and what they uh, what they did. Lampard, not so much, but that was obviously quite a different situation. His dad and his uncle at the time as well. But people like Rio, Joe Cole, Carrick, never anything but good things to say about the club, really. Oh, and I'm trying to... Because my team is not in the Premier League, I'm trying to take one eye off it. But of course, it was Frank Lampard's Everton, Fleverton, as they are called, uh, yeah. taking on West Ham. Do you reckon West Ham fans were triply annoyed uh, yesterday because of who the Everton uh, manager was? Possibly, yeah. And I'd say probably Lampard was probably even slightly happier than he would have been because of it being against us. I think that it may be that the animosity has, uh, has fallen a little bit over the last few years, but Certainly, when he was a Chelsea player, it was um, yeah, it was it, it, it was. I can't really think of the word. It was strange. Lampard seemed more bothered about West Ham as a club than I can't really think of many other examples of players being so so eager to talk about a club that you know he, he was fine to leave and they were fine to sell him. So. Which is which is strange because Frank Lampard Senior was so attached to that club, so you'd expect mm. blood to run thicker there, but. Something yeah. obviously happened behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think part of it was because um, these 
Dan was the assistant manager at the time and left the club when Redknapp did. But you can't have it both ways. You can't um, kind of constantly argue against nepotism when a lot of people thought he was in the team too young. There is an argument of that forever good he ended up. I think he, he was given opportunities that maybe wouldn't have been afforded to him. Made the most of those opportunities and was a fantastic footballer, without a shadow of a doubt. But opportunities nonetheless. I think it'd be, it's quite strange that he would argue against that for most of his time at the club and then immediately announce that when we sacked his, dad, his uncle and his dad, he'd never play for the club again. A little bit of a strange, mm-hmm. strange marrying up there for me. Uh, we know that Frank Lampard changed a lot of Chelsea games. Uh, did he put his stamp on any of the 50 games included on your new book, The Games That Made Us? Uh, scored in a couple of them, yeah. I think a winning goal, he scored a winning goal in um, one of the more memorable I think, Premier League games of all time, which was uh, a 5-4 win against Bradford, which was uh, Di Canio sitting on the pitch, Di Canio arguing with Lampard about taking a penalty. The very same Stephen Bywater that you mentioned earlier having a, a less than stellar debut in goal, but bless him. And one of the most bonkers afternoons of football, I think you'd do well to ever find, to be honest. And yeah, he actually did score a winning goal in that game. There so, we go. Yeah, so that's one that made the book. It really couldn't not, to be honest. So. Well, well, if we're on goalkeepers, don't worry, Mark Noble is coming up. And we'll see a lot of Mark <laughs> Noble because he's got a book out in November. Um, yes. Roberto. Roberto. Actually, Roberto... Because obviously a few people have asked me, why did you do it about the 50 most important rather than 50 best? I suppose kind of more traditional way. Uh, and there was a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, we haven't exactly won nine league titles over the last 30 years. So I thought 50 best. I thought by the time I got to about the 48th one, I think I might be struggling. But, and the reason that I wanted to go into the, the idea of important was because I, one of the, uh, the games that kind of struck me as, as an idea was us drawing 2-2 away to Bournemouth in a thing would have been what early oh, September 2019 yeah, yeah that's and, um, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's a game that on the, on, the, on the face of it really is quite forgettable I think yeah we scored a late equaliser drew 2-2 on you go but it was that game that Fabianski I think tore his tore a hit muscle was a rolled out for three months and uh, and Roberto came in and um yeah, all the fun and affair ensued, to be fair. Um, I tried to be... I, I actually... My well, future wife, as of the end of this week, will serve as editor for me for both of these... Uh, mm-hmm. Both of the books. And um, the, the first time after I wrote about Roberto, she actually said to me, I'm not sure you should write this. Well, it's not... <laughs> so it, you I didn't libel him. It was all true. Yeah, it, well, it was something along the lines of... I will say it was like... I think he's... <sighs> Obviously, you know, we've all seen as football fans players we don't think are very good or players we think are worse than not very good. And Roberto, I think, might be the only football I've ever seen play at the top level that I couldn't work out how he was doing it as a job. Was it a communication issue? You'd say maybe, but then I don't know how much communication leads to, you know, you coming out for a chance of Burnley and punching the ball into your own net. I mean... It's, it's a relatively universal language in that sense, isn't it, Johnny, mm. I suppose. But I think the, the bigger problem, and I make this point in the book, it wasn't even so much the goals we, we were letting in, and there were plenty of them. The entire team became a nervous wreck because, I mean, there was a game against Newcastle, I think, uh, I think it was John Joe Shelby, scored a free kick that was legitimately about 40 yards out, legitimately. And I think the problem for the team, it became nervous because it sort of felt 
anywhere on the pitch almost. If we gave the ball away, they might score. So, which well, yes, but the fans who are who blow bubbles and are unafraid to blow criticism the way of the team. At what point in the Roberto Odyssey did fans start backing him, or did they sarcastically applaud and thus make things even worse? No, I don't think it ever got there. I'll be honest. I think the problem we had was obviously, you know, transfer window. We, we, you, we didn't, you can't go and get another goalkeeper. You know, we were stuck with it, and it was going so wrong so quickly. I mean, we were fifth, I think, at the time he came in, and we were in the bottom three by the time we dropped him. Um, for David Martin, you know, a son of Alvin, and you know, was very, very popular through the fans, partly from yeah, from that that connection, also from just not being Roberto. But with the best respect, I mean, was was Millwall's backup goalkeeper the season before, and was then playing for us in the Premier League because the other guy had such little confidence, ability, whatever. And and yeah, you know, the team nearly, we really legitimately nearly got relegated. Which is it's incredible. I think I think seldom across you know my time could you say that one player could be more responsible for something like that. I've just remembered who went down that season. I wish you'd have played Roberto against Watford near the very. I think it's the last day of the season again, and we were hopefully or it sealed our relegation. I was listening because I was walking around London and I thought, oh, West Ham. I, didn't. I think we beat you quite late in that season. I think Declan Rice scored a very good goal from memory. It was July. July, it was the end yeah, of the season. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, because it was a very strange time that year when they're playing games. I actually mentioned there's a game, uh, I think, in that like, post, uh, post-lockdown post era, I think it was Chelsea, and I think the date is July or something. The first line of right, writing that tape for a Premier League match seems really strange. And it was only two and a bit years ago in the pandemic season, but not the... Yeah. Not the strangest season that West Ham have had. 30 of them are described, and it's a longitudinal study by Daniel Hurley, who is going to... Will you be blowing bubbles? Uh, is the first dance going to be something West Hammy? No, uh, my, my, my partner's a Liverpool fan, um, so I, I wouldn't really want to either have that or you'll never walk along. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it'll just be a, <laughs> just like a normal song. Which is also like yeah, a secular right. hymn. Um, we can read about West Ham Liverpool in your other book. Greatest escape. Yes. Are there any matches against what are now the big seven? Uh, so the London clubs, the Manchester clubs, and Newcastle. Are there any? Yeah, plenty. Yeah, I think Tottenham. I think probably make more appearances than anybody else. Um, not just because it's Tottenham. I think sometimes they've been them quite, quite seismic matches or quite interesting matches. Um, oddly, three matches against Wimbledon. Which you wouldn't expect, um, which I actually mentioned as part of the blur. There's more, yeah, more matches against Wimbledon than anybody would think would make a book about like this. But uh, yeah, and a couple against Manchester City, a couple against United, a couple against Arsenal, the Liverpool Cup final, and then a couple of others against Liverpool as yep. well. One which was our our first and to this point only winner at Anfield in my lifetime. Lifetime, I think only the second in my dad's. And my dad's sixty-one. When was that? Uh, that was 2015, I believe, during the last season at Upton Park. We went there and won 3 0. Since the day. We haven't won since. So, who was in so, that team of 2015? Noble that would have been captain. Noble, uh, Lanzini. Lanzini yeah. scored the first goal. Noble scored the second goal, actually. Uh, Pyatt had just joined, uh, Creswell. Um, so, some people who are still at the club, Bonner, I believe. 
and yeah, a bench that day that was uh, resembled a crash. I think when we were, we had a few early season injuries, which happens a lot, and um, we're a little bit short. But the start of eleven put in a fantastic performance, and yeah, as I say, it's to this day, yeah, I think only our second that we've had for since the sixties. So. What I'd love to see, and hopefully there'll be a, a book launch for um, the games that made us, Dimitri Payet and Paolo Di Canio. Trying to trying to see who was more important to West Ham United Football Club because Payet seemed to be a one man um, eyeball. He was like the Troy Deeney of West Ham in the way that it was him and ten others. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a special. It was just a, a real kind of lightning in a bottle time to be to, to be a fan. Obviously, the, the last season at the at the Bolin tied in with Payet. Certainly, there hadn't been anyone like that since Di Canio. And everything kind of just seemed to fall into place. I think we lost our first two home games that year and then didn't lose another one until the penultimate game. So, like, they've gone pretty much the entire year unbeaten at the, at the ground. Yeah, like, I, I kind of touch on this in the book. Um, Di Canio is probably my favourite. But my top three would probably be Di Canio, Pia and Declan Rice now. Ah, oh, um, don't tell Nobes. <laughs> Nobs is just a constant. No, no, Nobs. I don't think should be anyone's favourite player. He should just. He should be everyone's like fourth favourite player. I think that's actually be kind of the best summing up of his career that you could do. Because he was um, always there. Well, until he kind exactly. of was replaced by Rice. It was sixteen odd seasons where he was the first name there. Wore the yeah. armband, local lad, Chabwelly, the training grounds. Is it there a pitch on the training ground named after him now? Yeah, they've named some of the academy pitches after uh-huh. him, I believe. Yeah, and he's doing some coaching yeah, I, I, there as well. Yeah, I think the biggest compliment, I think Noble said this himself in a couple of interviews or documentaries, I think the biggest compliment I could pay Noble as well is the amount of different managers that did pick him. I can't imagine that, say, when Pellegrini took over West Ham, that he had the idea of picking Noble. And I don't think did very, very initially. But in sure as anything, within six, seven games, Noble was in and was a regular. I mean, for, you know, some, I think some... Non-West Ham fans kind of look at it a little bit mockingly, look, look at Noble rather a little bit mockingly. But there was a long, long line of managers that that picked him. You know, like to the very end, you know, until his very last game. You know, like against Manchester City. I mean, Moyes obviously brought him on, and I think the idea might have been to bring him on. But the game was two-two, and we were trying to hang on for a pretty important point at that, at that stage. And there was no other better option to bring on. So I think to the very end, he was he was still integral. I think, yeah, that's something that people shouldn't overlook with him. Mm. Uh, Noble, one of the constants. Uh, as in, a, in a time where West Ham moved stadia, changed managers every other season and uh, got a various uh, degree of strikers. Um, looking at the bump for this book, The Games That Made Us, one Welsh striker appears. Um, I know you're, you're probably going to tell this story a lot in publicising this book, but let's have the John Hartson tale. Yeah, so um, Hartson was my just yeah, well, my first real proper proper hero, I think. fellow ginger, um, first really really top level striker I'd seen us had. You know, just bulldozing through people. I think the start of the uh, ninety seven ninety eight season. I think he scored twenty goals by January. Like, which I haven't seen any West Ham player do since. Yeah, so he, he'd been my favourite for a long time. Um, and his performances have dropped off a little bit, but still still a favourite of mine. And um, my birthday is the 14th of January. And um, for my what was my 14th birthday, um, I'd been bought a couple of little West Ham gifts, as you were. 
um, one of which was like a little heart. And, um, I think it was like a sort of car sticker, but one is, you know, put your window and bedroom, what have you. Um, so, yeah, great, thanks. And then the following day, the 15th of January, I got up and looked on CFAX, as everyone I imagine of my age and older did. And the headline was Hearts and Signs for Wimbledon, seven and a half million pound deal, which hadn't been rumoured, hadn't been linked to anything. It was completely, it was as out of the blue as you could ever see a transfer. Plus, Wimbledon, I think their, their record transfer before that was about a million pounds. So, where that happened? So, yeah, like the day after at that point, I had hearts and shirts, hearts and posters, and they'd been bought a couple of hearts and things for my birthday, which was literally the day before. And then he'd left. And then that night I saw my dad, um, and my dad's birthday present to me was two tickets to watch us away to Wimbledon oh, two no. weeks later, which was actually the big man's debut. And actually, funnily enough, ended up being um, Decanio's debut as well. But, um, yeah, that was, a, it was a pretty memorable day, because I genuinely was looking at the television like it was broke, because none of it made sense to me. But, uh, yeah, it was a hell of a birthday present. So. Can you remember? I don't know why I'm looking it up. Because we've <laughs> literally written the book. Who was in the West Ham team that day? Um, it was an interesting one, actually. I, I actually mentioned this, this is one of the games. And it was a really interesting kind of um, change in the guard. Because you had some players, I think, like Tim Breaker, Julian Dix, making, I think, both of them pretty much like their, their second to last or third to last uh, appearances for the club. And they've been stalwarts for a decade. And then you also had like the Canio, uh, Martin Vivian Foe, who joined as well. And then younger players like Rio and Joe Cole um, as well. So it was a real kind of change in the guard type team, actually. Like some players who've been established for a long time and then kind of the newer generation starting to take over them. But yeah, quite an eclectic mix, actually. Brilliant. Uh, it seems that just mentioning there all these young players and a mercurial foreigner, it seems like the Canio really was the Cantonar of that West Ham side. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. Yeah, just became a talisman so quickly. It was just a treat. I saw, my dad says, you know, I kind of talk about some of these players the way that he did sort of Alan Devonshire and Trevor Booking and stuff. And I suppose a common thread is both those situations, you know, we didn't challenge the upper echelons of the league too often. But so many games, you'd, even in bad games, you'd still see a couple of like, fantastic bits of ball control or like, you know, a couple of flicks, tricks, whatever. There's always something that would kind of get you off your seat. And not just with the Canio, but Joe Cole, uh, Freddie Canute, Trevor Sinclair. Um, you know, a real cast of, of players that kind of would, would quote-unquote, make something happen. And, uh, yeah, that, that Red Nat era was a lot of fun. A lot yeah. of fun. Was, it, was it hard to broaden your scope from outside the Redknapp era? Because a lot of these 50 matches that define West Ham United would have come in the Redknapp, the top, top era, as no one calls it, between what, 1998, top, 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 96 and 2002, I guess, was uh, that Redknapp? 90, no, uh, 94 and I think 2001, I think it would have been. Um, to an extent, but then, <laughs> that was again one of the reasons I wanted to do it important because I think some of the bad matches are almost as important. And there, there were certainly quite a few bad ones after that. You know, the kind of Glen Roder relegation, Avram Grant relegation, um, some quite bad days under Allardyce as well. And in a weird way as well, I, kind of my personality lends itself to kind of be quite self-deprecating and kind of ironic. And, yeah, in a weird way, I think writing about some of the bad days is almost kind of more fun for me because you can kind of really let loose there's only so many ways you can keep saying it was brilliant 
and um, yeah, some of the uh, some of the, the poorer days that were in there, uh, losing six 0 at Man City in the League Cup, for instance, um, oh. kind of some of the bizarrely come up some of the more fun matches to write about. And then, of course, having sat through all of this, because you're so involved in this story, cometh the European football nights at the London Stadium, or even away. Yeah, Seville, in the lockout, Seville and Lyon, and then um, Frankfurt as well. Yes. So was it, I think I've, I haven't spoken to you since that Europa League superstar season. Yeah, it was quite fun, really. It was quite a sort of fun, sort of fun problem of the book, because originally the, the, you know, the deadline was kind of early 2022 and as the season rolled through particularly in Europe I kind of just became aware of the problem that the book could look really out of date really quickly if um, we did something in Europe that was worth mentioning that I hadn't wrote about but um, the guys at Pitch were brilliant and kind of quite understanding you know, of you know, we, we should probably get this in there so which funny enough led to me I think two days after the, the Frankfurt game sitting in I was away from a part of the time in, in Barcelona and Sitting there and kind of hammering out like the uh, my thoughts on that match and the Europa runs uh, as a whole, which were quite raw because obviously it was devastated that you know we'd lost, come so close to the final, maybe winning it, and didn't get there. But we're still um, we're still had an amazing, amazing journey, amazing. Um, like the Seville night is right at the top for me, right at the very, very top of being a West Ham fan and. Leon, in a similar way, it just felt unrealistic that we could be going to these places and playing them off the park. Because yeah, um, of the manager. But yeah, they did an unbelievable job. Please, God, sooner rather than later, he can get back to that. Um, oh, it's just a blip. But, um, just a blip. I hope so. I, I really do. I really think so and hope so. Uh, it's, just, it's an annoyance at the start, but I think um, job and the moments over the last two years shouldn't be um, shouldn't be underestimated. So I think there's plenty, plenty, plenty of clubs out there that have uh, given a lot for those. But that's not how it works anymore. It is so tedious, and I've actually fallen out of. I, I lose respect for the whole sport because you win the Champions League. And then have a bad result and you sack Thomas Tuchel and bring in Graham Potter. And when Graham Potter has a bad result, you'll sack him and bring him, I don't know, the guy they've just, uh, that Brighton have just bought in. Derenzi, I think his name is. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's horrible because it means that every 90 minutes is a job interview and that's not how it is if you're trying to build a team. Jurgen Klopp is having, what is it, their, their fourth defeat this year. And because it's this particular game against that particular opponent, it's not good enough. Yeah, there's always been an element of people being impatient, but that's certainly ratcheted up now. I think particularly, I think with um, kind of the world almost being like a 24-hour news site, 20, you know, phone-ins here, phone there. You know, everyone's got to find something to talk about, drive some engagement. And I think it can sometimes make the opinions a little bit more um, extreme maybe than they need to. And, you know, I think every, you know, every club and every manager, I think far too often decisions are made now before we get there. I think with your club in particular, to be fair. No comment. We've just (laughs) sacked the fourth sporting director in 10 years. So even the sporting directors aren't safe. It is nonsense. (laughs) Complete not. But I'd rather be playing in the championship. Wigan and Rotherham. We're more chance of winning that game. But, But when Sunderland... Uh, equalised in the last minute. Suddenly, Watford fans needed an outlet. They went to their phones, they used their shitty thumbs and said, ah, oh, Rob Edwards, get out. 
For God's sake. We didn't lose the game. You don't sack someone if you draw. It's a home it's a home game. We probably needed to dominate a bit more. But the opposition are managed by Tony Mowbray, who has probably 20 times as many games at, at much higher levels than this current manager. Of course you're going to get you done by Tony Mowbray. Who's better than David Moyes at this moment? Don't say Sean Dyche yeah. to manage West Ham. No, I, I wouldn't. Well, you know, it's one of those. I think every every manager, I mean, also every fan and every uh, of every club at the minute, the default answer is Pochettino. But um, there's a, <laughs> you mm. know, there's there's maybe a limit on what you can get, and I'm not sure that, uh, that he. We've had a couple of players that have joined us from Paris Saint Germain recently, which is great. I'm not sure the manager, but yeah, for me, you know. I think Moyes has done a fantastic job across two spells, and um, yeah, I think when you, you, things that he accomplished last year, while the league form did drop off a little bit, but as it would do, I think for a lot of clubs, uh, we're in a situation that we found ourselves in, including Frankfurt themselves, who actually went on and won the thing. I think mm. they were fifth or sixth in the Bundesliga and came fourteenth. They threw everything at that. We threw everything at that, and it didn't quite happen. But only one team can win can win these things per year, you know. So. Yeah, for me, uh, yeah, Moyes for the time being, and hopefully for the for the long term. Yeah, and I would I would love to read a transcript of a typical meeting between the manager and the board because whenever and I don't think that people six months ago were singing of Brady, uh, Sullivan, and Gold. I think you it may have been you who said it's in spite of them being there. But is it the fact that when West Ham do well, no one complains about the board? And when West Ham stop winning, it's, ah, oh, what are the board doing? The, the sky money has been spent. We don't seem to have any horrors in West Ham. It seems that there's no controversy apart from the guy who kicked the cat. But so um, yes, yeah, so these long, there are long-term issues which I won't go into here. But I think there are long-term issues that a lot of people would still say are important to them, and it's far from my place to tell people that they're that they're wrong. But yeah, I think with most clubs, you know, obviously the more kind of good times and success there is, the less there is of a kind of dissenting voices, whether that be the board, the players, whatever. And um, yeah, I think certainly the last couple of years, it's it's been a lot easier. I think to be a West Ham fan, and maybe it was a couple of years before that. But uh, yeah, so hopefully they can get back to that again quite quickly at the moment. Yeah, the games that made us fifty matches to define the last thirty years of West Ham United is published by Pitch. It includes uh, tales of Ricardo Vazte and Andrei Yarmolenko from the sublime <laughs> to the less sublime. Um, have a wonderful wedding, uh, and uh, will you be watching the World Cup this winter? I definitely will be. Yeah. Yes, uh, with the super Declan Rice and all, and all the other West Ham players. Who else should we look out for? Who's going to make the uh, World Piquet. Cup squad? Uh, Piquet of Brazil, uh, mm. Scamacca of Italy. Yeah, Piquet, I think, hopefully could have quite a big tournament. Yes, he's the one to... Again, Not I don't... Big, but I'd like to keep him. Yeah, don't care about the Premier League, but yeah, West Ham is a shop window for Piquet, and I'm sure that you'll make a huge profit of him. Daniel Hurley, thank you very much indeed. Just like the library! Just like the library!